Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is June 18th, 2012, and my guest is Joseph Stiglitz of Columbia University. He won the Nobel Prize in 2001, and his latest book is The Price of Inequality, How Today's Divided Society Endangers Our Future. Professor Stiglitz, welcome to Econ Talk. Nice to be here. Now, you paint a pretty bleak picture of the state of our economy, our economic system, and our political system, and I hope we'll have a chance to talk about all three of those. Let's start with inequality. Why is it so disturbing? How how big is it, and why is it getting worse? Well, the United States uh, uh, has distinguished itself as having uh, the highest level of inequality of any of the advanced countries. Uh, but even perhaps more disturbing is that it has become the country with the least equality of opportunity. And what that means is the chances of somebody... Uh, going from the bottom to the middle, bottom to the top, or the top down, are lower than in any of the other advanced countries. Um, the one way, uh, uh, an implication of that, of course, is that that the a child's uh, life prospects are more dependent on the income and education of his parents than in any of the other advanced uh, countries. That should be disturbing for at least two reasons, and this comes uh, uh, to the general theme of the book. One is that um, it means that uh, we are not using our most valuable resource, our talents of our young people, as well as we should. If you're uh, young and you're unfortunate enough to be born of a parent who is uh, not, uh, uh, doesn't have an good income, uh, the chances are that you won't be able to get the education that would lead you to live up to your potential. And the second reason why it's so disturbing is that it's part of our national self-identity that we're a land of opportunity, a land of equality. And of course, we all know examples of people who've made it from the bottom to the top, immigrants who've made it. But what is relevant is not these uh, few examples, what happens on average. And on average, we're not doing very well. And so even our sense of identity is being undermined by what's happening uh, in the United States today. Now, you make an important distinction there in that overview between what, what we might call absolute mobility and relative mobility. It, it is difficult in the United States, uh, not impossible, but Let's say it this way. My children have a, a very uh, good economic future probably ahead of them uh, because of the house they grew up in and the education that they're getting. Uh, the, to me, the more important question – and so they're going to stay, my guess. I don't know, but they, they have a good chance of staying in the top quintile, which is where they are now, I, where, I, where I am now. Uh, and I think that's true of a lot of well-educated people in, in professional jobs. Their kids have certain advantages from being there. To me, the fundamental question is whether people in the, let's say, the bottom four-fifths or the bottom 99 percent at the extreme, 
whether they can get ahead. Now, by ahead, you can ahead can mean ahead of others, or it can just mean improving. And you you paint an even bleaker picture than this picture of relative mobility. You argue that it's not just that they're not getting ahead of others; they're not getting ahead at all. That's right. Uh, um, the statistics that that look at how well people uh, what's happening to to the median people in the middle uh, are pretty bleak. Um, uh, median inc- household income in the United States is down uh, to a level below 1997, a decade and a half ago. The but that uh, is only a result uh, as bad as it is. The only result. Because uh, more and more uh, uh, members of the household are looking are, are working. So uh, the other statistic that I find just uh, very very depressing is uh, the income of a full time male uh, worker today uh, is comparable to what it was in 1968, uh, more than uh, uh, four decades ago. Um, that's hard to and believe. And if you look it's, it's, at particular you, groups like those who don't finish college, right. and a uh, uh, increasingly large fraction of Americans are not finishing college, um, their prospects look even bleaker. Their incomes are actually going down significantly. It's, it's certainly true that if uh, the more Americans are attending college, but not so many are finishing. Um, but I, I find that 1968 number a little hard to believe. I just, let me make some obvious challenges to it, some of which you refer to in the book, but I want to hear your, your thoughts. Uh, first of all, you and I think we're both alive in 1968. Uh, I remember what 1968 roughly looked like, and this looks a lot better. And it's not just because I hang out in a rich city and hang out with rich people. The average American appears to have a much better life today than the average male than in 1968. So you start to wonder whether the data that, that you look at and others look at are, are accurate. Do they include fringe benefits? Is the measure of inflation measured correctly? Is the median distorted by demographic changes and other, other uh, effects? Family size is an example of a problem. Uh, when you correct for those things, the median doesn't look so bad. The CBO's median income data has risen steadily since the late 70s. It's not dramatic. It's not as dramatic as the overall average, but you wouldn't expect it to be. Uh, what do you think of those challenges? Well, I try to uh, discuss those challenges in my book. Um, most of them, what I call, are statistical quibbling. Um, you know, in the end, uh, what you can say is fairly unambiguously is that the middle has not seen uh, uh, a uh, increase in its income. Uh, what you see more particularly is, because the measurement errors problems are, are, are pervasive, that there is an increasing gap between, uh, the, the top and the middle. Uh, and that, uh, uh the middle has been stagnating, uh, the top, uh, has been doing very well. Uh, and you see it in all kinds of other statistics uh, of uh, um, stress, uh, of how people are spending their time. Uh, of uh, uh, so, I I actually think that that I don't want to go to the wall and say that these numbers uh, 
no no set of number precisely captures what is going on and anything as complex as somebody's life. But what is clear is that uh, things are not going well for uh, the typical middle class person. That's certainly true right now, um, and certainly the last few years have been hard on uh, lots and the of folks. Data that, by the way, that came out on uh, uh, last week uh, from the Federal Reserve on what's happened to median wealth. Median wealth is is a a, a number that uh, has some advantages over. Uh, Income as a measure because it, it it isn't subjected to the year but to the year to year fluctuations that income is subjected to. Um, median wealth uh, is back to the level of the early nineties. Um, whereas if median wealth in the United States had kept pace with the overall growth of wealth, uh, you would have seen median wealth increase by seventy five percent. So. Uh, median wealth, uh, you might say, uh, wasn't terrible in, if you were, a, if you want, or defender of the status quo, you say it wasn't terrible in 92. What do they have to complain about? It's not gotten worse than it was <laughs> in 20 years. Yeah. But we like to think of ourselves of having progress. Yeah. And to say that the typical family now is, uh, nowhere, uh, better off than he was 20 years ago. Wow. The top. The rest of the economy has done enormously well. Is a story of a country becoming increasingly divided. Yeah, of course, a lot of that wealth data from the Federal Reserve—that's a very messy data set, by the way. I've looked at it uh, in a little bit of detail, but a lot of that, of course, is housing wealth. And um, as housing prices rose dramatically through the late '90s and early 2000s, measured wealth went up a lot. It was on paper, and now it's back down. I assume it. I presume it'll come back a little bit, but it is it is discouraging. And I think your point about the upper 1% or the upper levels is, is the one we ought, we ought to at least focus on here for a minute. Uh, when you have lots of opportunity as an economy for entrepreneurship, which the United States still does, I believe, I think the venture capital side of our economy is one of the healthier parts, and it's certainly the only healthy part of our financial system. Just something and it's a very small part yes. of our economy if you look at the numbers. It is, but it's, it drives a lot of, um, of innovation, obviously, that affects us day to day. Um, that part ha- has done, has done quite well. And, um, I, I guess the question is, would you make a distinction? What, what, let me say it a different way. When you have innovation going on in an economy, you're always going to have people who are large winners and that's going to make the top 1% look, look very healthy. Uh, it's not the same people. Uh, the top 1%, LeBron James is in it now. He wasn't in it in 1992. He was very poor. Um, Sergey Brin was a you know was a, a humble graduate student, and then he founded Google. The same is true of Mark Mark Zuckerberg, a humble undergrad, maybe not so humble, but um, in terms of <laughs> in terms of lifestyle, not not ego. But you know these you're going to see in a healthy dynamic economy, and we are I would argue probably the most innovative economy in the world. You're going to see large winners emerge. Those emerge for two reasons. One of which is they're really good at making a lot of people happy. That would be LeBron James and Sergey Brin and others who entertain us and, and who educate us and divert us. Then there's some people who are doing what you describe as rent-seeking. They're taking money from the rest of us using the power of government. A lot of those are in the financial sector, and those, I would say, are, are bad ways that the top gets wealthy. Would you make a distinction between those two? 
Yes, I would. And my concern is that uh, disproportionately a very large fraction of those people at the top are in the second category, rank seekers. And that's precisely the point. If we uh, uh, had an economic system that uh, had uh, just the wealth creators, I think there wouldn't be this kind of attitude that there is uh, today. Uh, the problem is that those in the financial sector who make so much money by predatory lending, abusive credit card practices, monopoly, uh, you know, some of the monopolists may originally have made an important contribution, but then they use their monopoly power to leverage their original contribution to get outsized, uh, take advantage of others. Uh, and that again distorts the economy. Uh, 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 if you look at the CEOs, uh, who take advantage of, uh, deficient rules on corporate governance to, um, uh, take a larger and larger share of the corporate revenues. Uh, these are all rent seeking activities. And I think what Americans haven't realized the extent to which rent seeking has become pervasive and the fraction of those at the top that are, uh, for, who, who derive significant portions of their of their wealth from rent seeking and of course there are the spillovers that occur from that i I often console myself in a not so attractive way with the fact that the large size of my salary is not merely due to my cleverness and brilliance as a teacher or an economist oh that it were so it, it's partly due to the fact there's been an increase in demand for economists by the financial sector which has helped my salary indirectly so those subsidies help me uh, it also, of course, happens in other areas. Uh, doctors are a large part of the 1%. Um, they're beneficiaries of health care subsidies. As you point out in the book, lawyers are a large part of the 1%. They are the benefit. They write many of the laws, and strangely enough, <laughs> they, they benefit from them. Um, so th- that raises That's the, the whole idea of trickle-down economics. You throw enough money at the top, uh, everybody benefits. Uh, it's a very inefficient way of running a society. And uh, in the end, trickle-down economics does not work for our or for any other society. Uh, if trickle-down economics really worked, uh, then the people in the middle would be doing uh, very well because we've thrown so much money at the top. But the fact is uh, that while the top is doing very well, uh, those in the middle uh, are not. Median income today, adjusted for inflation, is the same as it was in 19, is below 1997. So um, uh, it seems to me that w- and this is really one of the major themes of the book, The Price of Inequality. We pay a very high price for this inefficient way of running our society. Uh, we would do a lot better if we uh, had a set of rules, regulations, taxes that did not encourage rank-seeking. I couldn't agree with you more. I think probably where we disagree, we'll get to this later, is is how to get there from here. But you see this as a a fairly pervasive problem. It goes way beyond uh, the financial sector when you talk about this. Um, And I see it. In pockets around the economy, I see uh, the agricultural sector is is a enormously rent-seeking part of our economy that's coddled by the government. 
Uh, the auto sector is now becoming part of that. Uh, but I see large parts that aren't that way. Um, the retail sector is pretty competitive. Uh, the innovation sector, the techno- the high-tech sector, these are all fairly competitive, it seems to me. There was issues about patents uh, that you raised in the book. I think that's a good issue. But overall, there, it, there's a lot of innovation and competition going on in those sectors. Do you see this as a more pervasive problem for the economy as a whole, or do you see it as, as uh, a, a more localized problem? Well, when you go down the various sectors of our economy, <clears throat> we have, a, a, as you pointed out, a few very dynamic sectors, uh, very successful sectors, uh, the high-tech sector. Um, but we also have uh, a, a very large number of sectors that are uh, dominated by rank-seeking and, and an increasingly large, uh, over recent years, a fraction of our economy so uh and and it, it it is intertwined with almost every other with every sector so we talked so so far about the financial sectors uh there the uh corporate governance which gives a scope for CEOs uh to take a outside share of of corporate revenues is something that occurs in in uh a very large fraction of american uh enterprise where 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 there is insufficient uh, as I say, they take advantage of the deficiencies in corporate governance. Uh, you mentioned agriculture. Um, uh, I would also ma- mention the energy sector, the health insurance sector. Yep. Uh, actually, there are lots of, uh, when you look down at the micro, local level, there turns out to be uh, small uh, rank-seeking uh, at the local level, uh but writ large adds up to uh, uh, can be add up to a significant amount. So uh, it's very hard to quantify what is the overall fraction of rank seeking in the economy. But I am absolutely convinced that it represents a significant fraction and is significantly distorting our our economy. Yeah, well, I, you know, I agree with that. I think, but you see it. I think where we differ is you see this as growing out of a, uh, a deregulation, laissez-faire philosophy. And I see, of course, the exact opposite. I see the size of government growing dramatically in a number of sectors, education, health, agriculture, uh, even the financial sector. Although there's been some deregulation, there's also been increased intervention. It's not, it's not regulation, but intervention by government to reduce the natural feedback loops that, that should make that sector more competitive and more of a profit and loss system. Where people bear costs for their mistakes, do you see any problems with that relationship? That as government's gotten bigger, people are spending more time trying to steer it towards themselves. Well, obviously, um, uh, rent seeking through government uh, is a uh, a problem, and I won't I won't deny that. I mean, obviously. There's a lot of rank seeking in defense contractors, uh, uh, a lot of, uh, rank seeking we've talked about in, in agriculture. Um, but it doesn't have to be. There are some parts of government spending where there's actually relatively little, uh, rank seeking done extraordinarily efficiently. I'm thinking of the National Science Foundation, uh, National Institute of Health, uh, NIH, uh, the um, so it's not an inherent property of 
uh, of government, uh, that there is this kind of uh, ring-seeking. What is inevitable, though, is that government is going to set the rules of the game. And what's disturbed me is that, as a result of our politics, that the rules of the game are being set in ways that indirectly uh, distort our economy and create inequality. Uh, our bankruptcy law is an example. Financial deregulation is an example. Uh, so that uh, no economy can go without rules of the game. You have to have rules of the game. The question is, what are those rules of the game? And uh, how are those rules of the game uh, uh, chosen? So what is so disturbing is that that the rules of the game in, in the United States are uh, chosen in ways that do not necessarily lead to a more efficient economy, but which do lead to more inequality. I couldn't, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. But you know, for example, uh, you 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 complain in the book, and, and I agree with you that that Dodd Frank has been a very disappointing uh, financial reform. But it's not surprising that it's a disappointing financial reform. The clamor for reform came from. Everyday people who were upset with what happened, reasonably so. But the people who spent the most time in the halls of Congress were the ones who had the biggest stake and they were the investment banks. And as you point out, they watered down a lot of the provisions. The one that makes me the most upset is the too big to fail part. We, we basically still have too big to fail. Exactly. Uh, and so that's the way the world works. How, how do we get a world that's, uh, where power is is not the decisive voice in political affairs. In other words, it's nice – let me make it a starker question because I think this is a centerpiece of your work. You've been one of the, if not the most pioneering voice for the prevalence of market failure. Uh, and I certainly agree that markets fail all the time. They're imperfect. question is what's better? And I don't think it's easy to make the case that – Government in practice is better. Government in theory is better. But has government in practice made the case that we won't have these rent-seeking and, and political power exploitations that, that you're as upset about as I am? Uh, well, in a way, you know, when I was writing the book, uh, one, one title that did occur to me is uh, uh, a paraphrase of President Clinton's uh, 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 Campaign, uh, it's the economy stupid. Right. Uh, it's, it's, it's the, it's the politics stupid. And, and you're absolutely right. Uh, but I, I, I guess my view is that we, politics doesn't have to work this way. Um, one of the themes of the book is that economic inequality leads to inequality of political power. Inequality of political power feeds back into more inequality of economic power. Uh, that we are uh, embarked on a vicious circle which is undermining both our politics and our economics. And so, in a way, what I'm saying is, look, at we, we, we live in a democracy. We're supposed to be one person, one vote. That was the theory. We've deviated. I describe how we've become much more, uh, almost a, a better description is one dollar, one vote. Uh, and we're, do, that too, just like the the outcome of the uh, the economy is a result of the rules, the specific rules that lead to outcomes that serve special interests uh, and exacerbate economic inequality. 
the rules of the political game have been leading to outcomes that uh, exacerbate the effects of political inequality. So, in a way, I think you and I are probably on the same wavelength here. I think we need to reform some of our politics and try to identify some of the reasons that things have not worked well in politics. Uh, maybe I'm more of an optimist. I think that we can restore democracy and make our, our democracy more reflective of uh, the views of more of our citizens. Um, and, and, and that is, uh, that, those reforms are, are, are what perhaps gives me uh, the, the hope that I referred to at the end of the book. Well, I, and I like to say the Republicans and Democrats are very similar. They both like to give money to their friends. They just have different friends. But but they do have one friend in common, unfortunately, which is the financial sector. And both President Obama and Mitt Romney uh, take a lot of money from there. And uh, that mutes their ability to speak out against it. Uh, When they do speak out against it, they reassure them privately that it's just for politics. And I think, you know, where we certainly agree is that I think that's our biggest problem. I think you devote more space in the book to the, uh, imperfections of the financial sector and the special treatment of the financial sector than any other part of the economy. And it is a big problem. One of the points that you make that I think is inadequately made in the in the public media is the role that the Fed has played in subsidizing the financial sector through low interest rates and now through paying interest on deposits with the Fed, which I view as totally corrupt. Uh, what would you do with the Fed if you had your druthers? Well, uh, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right uh, that the hidden subsidies uh, 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 that the Fed has given, uh, the lack of transparency, uh, has been deeply disturbing. Um, part of the problem that I argue uh, in the case of Fed is that we need uh, better governance, uh, more transparency. Uh, you know, I thought it was uh, so disturbing that uh, when Bloomberg wanted to know where the AIG money went, uh, the Fed said it's not accountable. It doesn't have to obey the Federal Freedom of Information Act. Uh, and then when the district court said, yes, you do, they still said, no, we don't, and uh, appealed. And when they lost the appeal, there was actually a lot of discussion in the Fed to say, to challenge it all the way to the Supreme Court until, from what I've heard, people in administration said, you know, you are part of the government. You can't, you, you, you have to be accountable. Um, the way that uh, the uh, heads of the regional banks are appointed, uh, with, uh, especially in the past, uh, a large, uh, say, from the banks that they were actually supposed to be regulating, is obviously a, a problem with in 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 governance. Um, I think you need a central bank, but I think you need a central bank that's more accountable, and I think you have to have a central bank that's more representative. By that I mean it has to take into account the effects of its policy on workers and unemployment. Uh, and right now, it's uh, I think the financial sector is disproportionately. Uh, represented on the on the board and the, those who who uh, serve there, not as bad as some other countries, but still uh, disproportionately. And so, I think I I would make an explicit effort to make uh, the Fed more representative. 
there are lots of qualified people who understand economics uh, who uh, are not uh, beholden to the to the financial sector. Some of them are on the board. I think we need more. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, I think the incentives there are not so good. Uh, I think we would have, you and I both would have agreed five years ago that Ben Bernanke is not beholden to the financial sector, uh, but he has acted like every other Fed chair uh, once he's in the chair. This is what I describe in the book as cognitive capture. Yep. You, you, you spend enough time there and you, you, you get uh, uh, taken by the people that you're serve. And this, of course, was an old point that George Figler made. Um, the uh, And that's why I think you need to uh, make sure you, maybe you have some people who are more who are less likely to suffer from that kind of cognitive capture. Uh, for instance, having maybe somebody who understands economics from the from the labor movement or from uh, NGOs, uh, people who, who see themselves very much as uh, uh, guardians against that kind of capture. Yeah, they, they might be harder to capture, although you never know. I, I liked your you point. Never know. <laughs> I liked your point very much about cognitive capture. And I, I had the same thought um, having been recently teaching the theory of moral sentiments by Adam Smith. You know, he says in there that um, man, man by his very nature uh, wants not only to be loved but to be lovely. Uh, that is to be appreciated by others and to have earned it. And I think it's easy for us to convince ourselves that we are lovely. And so I'm sure that all the people on the Fed think they're doing the right thing. And that's what you refer to by cognitive capture. And as you say, if you listen to the same small circle of, of um, investment bankers on your board and others, uh, you're certainly going to be able to convince yourself that what's good for um, investment banks is good for America, which is not true. By the way, when I when I mentioned recently at a speech at the Fed that that the Fed needed more transparency, I, the protest from one of the employees was that we're the most transparent central bank in the world, which is really faint praise, wouldn't you say? <laughs> That's right, and and actually we've not we've not uh, been at the leadership. Actually, the Bank of England has has really been uh, taking more of the leadership in in transparency, but. One of the things that that I've noticed is that that there are much more stronger advocates of transparency when there's nothing to hide. Yeah. Um, when they're only talking about whether or they're going to increase the interest rate by a quarter or lower it by a quarter. Uh, when it came to dispensing uh, the hundreds of billions of dollars of gifts uh, to the banking sector, uh, which they knew were going to be politically uh, uh, charged. They they lost their commitment to transparency. Why do you think that they – one of the more embarrassing things that they did not want public was how much money they've given to foreign banks. Um, why do you think they did that? Not hide it, but why did they actually subsidize so many and rescue so many foreign uh, creditors? Well, I think some of this has to do with uh, these banks were intimately intertwined with American banks. Uh, in many cases through CDSs, through these complicated derivatives. And that's an example of where um, uh, our banks and our bank financial system uh, remains, after Dodd-Frank, uh, not totally transparent, far from transparent. Uh, you know, uh, a couple, uh, not long ago, there was a lot of uncertainty about what would happen when if the Greek, when Greece restructured its debt, 
And uh, no one knew because no one knew the exposure of American banks, European banks, the right. Greek banks, uh, both directly, but even more through uh, CDSs, through these uh, derivatives. And it was totally clear that we hadn't really fixed uh, this lack of transparency. When you have that lack of transparency, uh, you are... Uh, 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 oh, you, you can you can uh, suffer from uh, this fear, especially uh, generated by the banks. They'll say, if you don't bail out uh, our partner here, he's going to fail, and then he won't be able to pay us, and then we won't be able to pay somebody else. So the banks are so they're they've become too intertwined to fail. Um, again, a failure of regulation that they should have stopped, and. Um, uh, the result that I think is at least part of the reason that we bailed out those foreign banks. It was bailing. It was an indirect way of bailing out our own banks without seeing the money going there. Yeah, I'm afraid that's true. And I, you know, the AIG bailout. It's not a bailout of AIG. It was a bailout of of Goldman, Goldman Sachs. Sachs. Was the largest recipient. Sec- I think and second. Then, I think second. And, I think there was a. I think I can't remember who the number one was, but they were very close. Um, yeah, and, and but the foreign banks that got the money. Many people suspect that one of the reasons they got money is again because of this intertwining with Goldman Sachs and other American banks. Yeah, and my my theory, which is um, just speculative, as to why we didn't rescue Lehman, is that many of its creditors were Japanese banks that didn't have any political voice and didn't have those those intertwinings, and um, it was just too bad. Uh, but who knows? Uh, that's just a speculation. Um, but coming back to the theme of the book, all of this leads to inequality because uh, those are all institutions that have uh, payment structures in which a few people at the top walk off with millions and millions of dollars. Hundreds of millions in some cases. Um, That's right. Yeah, it, it, it's a rather um, – you know, it's historically unprecedented. Uh, the transfer of public money to people who are already the richest people in human history, it, it's really uh, – but l- let me challenge you on that because many, many economists who feel the way you do, uh, that is who are worried about inequality and very much focused on that, uh, supported these bailouts. And I, I view – I understood the, sh- the short-term issue, but I would have preferred paying the short-term price. The long-term price is uh, destroying our, our political and, and economic system. But each time these bailouts occurred, they go back to 1984 with Continental Illinois. Some would say even before that, but the, you know it really starts with Continental Illinois in '84, uh, the Mexican bailout, which was a bailout not of Mexico, but again of I think mostly American banks who were Mexico's creditors. Uh, all of these were supported by mainstream economists who said, "Well, it's not attractive." You know, so Alan Greenspan, so-called free marketer, uh, supported the Mexican rescue, uh, the U.S. guarantee of their next round of debt. That was all supported as, as quote necessary at the time, and yet has sown the seeds for these uh, sown the seeds for these these um, the misbehavior on the part of banks and the recklessness and the imprudence. So how do we get? I, out of, I agree. How do we get uh, out of know, that? There's a distinction that I make between saving the institution and saving the bankers, the bondholders, and the shareholders. Uh, I think if was perhaps necessary that we save some of these institutions. Uh, it was totally unnecessary that we rescue the shareholders and the bondholders uh, and the bankers. And 
if we had played by the rules of capitalism, uh, which include conservatorship, uh, if the uh, banks can't pay what they owed, the shareholders get out, wiped out, the bondholders uh, step in. If the bondholders can't can't uh, uh, fill the breach, then the bondholders get wiped out. Yep. Uh, if we had played by the rules of capitalism, we would have uh, avoided creating the kind of inequality, the system of unfairness we have. We would have a more efficient uh, economy. Um, and we would have contributed less to this problem that everybody recognizes now of moral hazard because the banks realize that when they gamble, especially these too big to fail banks, if they gamble and they win, uh, they walk off with the profits. When they lose, the taxpayer picks up the tab. Uh, uh, I think it was unconscionable. Uh, they say that they fixed the problem. Uh, I don't know if you share my view. I think uh, they clearly haven't. No, you know, they, they say haven't. the living wheels, uh, these uh, um, uh, the, that that orderly uh, resolution. Uh, and the next crisis comes, uh, they'll do a, almost the same thing that they did in the last crisis. And the reason is the bankers will scare the politicians, and they will tell them uh, it will be the end of the world. Yep. It will be the end of the world as far as the bankers may That's be right. concerned. <laughs> But it would be actually better for our economy. Well, we, 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 the main evidence for the fact that nothing has changed is that we, we, we supposedly fixed this problem in 1991. I think it was with FIDESHA, uh, the FDIC Improvement Act, uh, which uh, was not invoked in this crisis, uh, even though it was on the books. And, but it was special you're, circumstances, you're exactly right. special circumstances. The world's going to end, as you say. Uh, so how, what, what would you suggest that we do? To try to actual to get some actual change and some accountability in the financial sector, what, what Milton and Friedman called a profit and loss system, which would be a good idea. Well, as we were talking before, uh, underlying the problem is politics, and I think we're going to need uh, to make our democracy more democratic. Uh, we're going to have to have campaign finance reform, do something about lobbying, uh, something about the revolving doors. Uh, try to restore our democracy, uh, closer to one person, one vote, uh, at least move away from one dollar, one vote. Um, and I talk about some of the, the, the reforms that, that can be done, uh, there. Um, I think in terms of the economics, uh, I think most economists are fairly well agreed on, uh, the economic, uh, on the agenda for reforming the financial sector, for instance, uh, we have to do something about the too big to fail banks, too intertwined, uh, to fail, uh, banks. Uh, the banks, the, the, there's no reason that for justification for the lack of transparency in the derivatives. Uh, there is no reason that a government insured bank, uh, should be in writing these risky products. We may have a difference about whether they're insurance or whether they're gambling products, but whatever they are, they're not loans. They're not something that ought to go within a bank. And uh, two of the Federal Reserve governors, uh, regional heads of the regional banks, Honey and Fisher, uh, very much took that view, but the uh, Geithner and Bernanke captured by, cognitively captured by, by Wall Street, uh, took the other view, and, and they prevailed. Um, so 
I think in terms of the economic ag- agenda of what needs to be done, I think there's a broad agreement among economists. Uh, the question is, can we get it through the politics? And, and here I, I, I remain pessimistic with you. Yeah, especially when you have people coming to office uh, as reformers such as President Obama or President Clinton who you know vowed they would have the most ethical administration of all time. Very hard to stop that revolving door. Um, boy, is it hard to monitor. It just uh, – I think that's that will always be with us. Um, well, I don't think it has to be always with us. I think I think the issue here has to do with these political reforms, and and unfortunately, things have gotten worse uh, with a, a set of uh, court decisions uh, that have uh, seemingly given more and more power to money. Yeah, on the on the optimistic side, though, you have movements on the left and the right, which would be the Occupy Wall Street and the Tea Party movement, both of which agree. That uh, bank bailouts are a bad idea. So that's some hope for the future. Maybe that will pressure future politicians a little bit if those views become. I hope so. I hope so. I I, I think this is this is partly where the the debate can can become healthy. And one of the things that I've uh, felt good about my book is that in the discussion of the price of inequality, uh, by focusing on. some of the major sources of inequality, uh, the rank-seeking activity, um, there is actually common ground between uh, uh, the left and the right. You know, I, th- I think the people, uh, uh, and certainly among most economists who, who do f- find, uh, agree with me that rank-seeking is uh, a kind of activity that both increases inequality and weakens the economy. Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, my... My challenge, though, I think for you is that the calls for more regulation, uh, you have to be optimistic in the, in those calls that, that the story is going to unspool itself in a different way than it has in the past, that there won't be capture, that there won't be, um, these distortions. Well, there, we've, we've been successful sometimes in the past of, of doing things right. Um, and maybe I'm, more, I'm a Midwesterner, and maybe it's my Midwestern optimism that comes comes forward. But uh, in the aftermath of World War, uh, aftermath of the Great Depression, uh, we did pass Glass-Steagall, and Glass-Steagall did serve to stabilize our financial system uh, for decades. We didn't have a financial crisis for decades. Uh, it was only as we began to strip away the regulations uh, that we began to have more and more crises. Uh, you know, of course, as times changes, you're going to have to change the regulatory structure. So, uh, it, 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 the real issue was, could we have changed that regulatory structure to adapt it to, to, uh, the changing technology, changing economy? I believe we could have. Uh, but obviously, uh, the deregulation movement, particularly that took place in the 80s in the financial sector, and then continued under President Clinton, uh, didn't go in that direction. Yeah. And we have, you know, you could make the same story about, uh, uh, our housing policies, right? Post World War II, uh, post Great Depression, Fannie Mae seemed to be a, a, a useful part of housing finance, but in it lay a not very healthy set of incentives that inevitably caused problems. Um, 
it's interesting. That's right. It, it's I mean, interesting it, how long it, it, it took, it, right? It's interesting how long it took, but inherently, and you know, you can say the same thing about Social Security. Uh, it worked great when demographics were in its favor, but it's got probably has to change. Well, let, let me say on on, on the housing uh, thing that that uh, the critical mistake we made was again came out. You might say in governance when we privatized it. In 1968, yep, and we didn't uh, clarify the extent to which it uh, was or was not uh, a government institution, even though it was privatized. Uh, and then we allowed it to be get too big to fail. To go back to one of the things we've talked about before, I don't think uh, whether it was private or public, we would have bailed it out uh, because it was too big to fail. And it knew it was too big to fail. What happened under a series of hags is it lost its mission. Remember, its yep. mission was for conforming loans uh, for uh, typical Americans. Uh, it wasn't uh, for the people at the bottom. That, there was a separate agency for that. Or the top, uh, by the way. Which it also, or the top. It, in the last that, 10 years, it got increasingly involved in both the bottom and the top. That's right, but if it had kept with the commission of, uh, of, of conforming loans, as they were called, right. it would not have gotten into the, uh, the problems. The pro- difficulty was it was a private sector, in, it would have been privatized, and the CEOs got jealous, I think, of the profits that were being made of the CEOs in, in other financial institutions and said, we can do Everything that they can do, and, and and maybe even better, we're even bigger, and we're even more too big to fail. And of course, they did that, and of course, they did fail. Yeah, they and also, the government came to their rescue, and it be, it became a useful tool for politicians to push them in directions that I think they were very happy to be pushed uh, because it allowed them in the short run to make a lot more money lending outside those conforming loans. Um, let's turn to the economy as a whole. Um, you have been a outspoken advocate for stimulus um, and the effectiveness of stimulus. I'm a skeptic. Tell me why you think stimulus was successful and what you think we ought to be doing now, whether you know, regardless of whether it was successful or not. Wh- wh- where are we at? Well, um, the, in evaluating whether it was or was not uh, successful, uh, the difficulty is. Uh, what we economists call the counterfactual, yep. what would otherwise have been. And uh, I am convinced that had it not been for the stimulus, unemployment would have peaked at 12 to 13%. As it was, it peaked at 10%. That's terrible, but the uh, stimulus was simply not large enough, uh, was not well enough designed, uh, was not of long enough duration to really address uh, our country's problem. The underlying problem was lack of demand. Lack of demand caused by several factors. 40% of of all investment before the crisis was in real estate. Uh, With the breaking of the bubble, that that went. Uh, The average savings rate in the United States was zero. That was not sustainable. With the breaking of the bubble, savings soared to 4 or 5%. Not going to return back to where it was, uh, uh, perhaps ever, because that was an abnormality. But you took away two of the major sources of uh, demand. 
with demand that weak, something had to fill it in. It's not going to be investment when consumption is so weak. Uh, it's not going to be exports when our trading partners are so weak. And so the only thing to fill it in is uh, government stimulus. Now, well-designed government stimulus, uh, investments, investments in technology, infrastructure, education, uh, yielding high returns, more than pay back the cost of borrowing. Right now, the cost of borrowing short is zero, long is one and a half percent. If we could borrow, if a firm could borrow at those interest rates and have returns on on investments comparable to what we can get in the, in the public sector, uh, it would be foolish not to do it. When I was chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, we did a study of the returns that we got from social and uh, 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 returns that we got from investments in R&D, and they were phenomenal. Um, you know, we didn't win every every project, but if we had, we w- would have been a sign that we weren't undertaking enough risk. But the average return from government investment projects uh, in technology uh, were actually huge. Uh, and uh, uh, no, no risk that we're not being able to repay the amount that we uh, borrow. So in my mind, right now, um, given our underlying problems of inequality, which is weakening our economy because as you move money from the bottom to the top, total demand goes down, given our necessity of a structural transformation uh, to adapt the economy, move it away from manufacturing towards the uh, uh, economy of the 21st century, um, the only way we are going to make this successful transition and recover will be through uh, some form of uh, government uh, stimulus. So people- Monetary policy is not going to work. Well, and, some would say uh, we that have, we know. Well, some would say we and haven't so tried it. It's the one option. Some would say we haven't tried it, but um, l- let's leave monetary. Oh, policy. you're not going to lower short-term interest rates below zero. No, but you can still you can long-term s- interest rates at one and a half percent. In fact, we've tried uh, 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 QE1, QE2. Uh, uh, and there's a good theoretical reason why, uh, in a world of globalization, monetary policy isn't going to work. You provide liquidity in a world of globalization, the money goes to where the returns are highest. And right now, the returns are highest in the emerging markets that are dynamic, not in the American economy that's moribund. Yeah, but if you make those investments, you gain those benefits if you, wherever you invest them, and that those resources are going to still be available here. I, I think it's an open question whether – Well, we've tried it. I don't think it's an open question. I, I think we've tried it, and we, we've seen what's happened. I mean, basically, um, why should we expect it to work? Uh, you, you provide liquidity out there, and the, and, and the money – the global marketplace out there, and it's going to go where they think the returns are highest. The returns in a private sense, not the social sense. Each firm is looking at what its private returns are, where sure. its private returns are highest. American companies are saying, okay, I can produce more cheaply abroad, tax advantages of moving my companies abroad, and uh, bring the goods back to the United States, create the jobs abroad, sell the goods in America. Of course, right now, they can't sell the goods in America because the economy is not doing very well. But uh, consumption, that, spending, you know, consumption spending is still very high. 
Conception spending is very oh, still high, but it wasn't like it was. Uh, I think it's uh, back. I think uh, it's back. Uh, I haven't looked at it lately, but I think it's back. I think it's above its 2007 peak. But. Oh, yeah, I know. But in a, in a half a decade, if we're going to have a strong enough economy to find jobs for the new entering the labor force, that's not good enough. Yeah, well, I agree with that, at least – I agree we're not doing well enough to take care of those folks. I th- let's go back to the fiscal side and the stimulus side. You argue that in the absence of the stimulus, we would have had a, uh, a much higher unemployment rate. But, of course, the proponent, proponents of the stimulus at the time said it would that would not happen. Uh, they, they said that if we didn't have stimulus, the counterfactual would be uh, – unemployment would reach eight and a half, I think, was the, was the fear. If we did not well, – the problem, I mean, I agree. Obama's team made a critical error in underestimating the severity of the downturn uh, and the employment effects. Uh, in my book, Freefall, I, I, I try to give a, uh, explain why I was not surprised that they had underestimated. I mean, after all, uh, the Obama economics team, including some of the people that were the deregulators, that were the people who were supposed to be supervising the New York banks, the people who were spo- who wrote the, uh, you know, who, whose achievement was to give unbridled uh, deregulation to derivatives. So they didn't want to admit that they had really messed up. They didn't want to admit that the uh, financial sector had really messed up the economy so badly. So I think they had an ingrained incentive to try to minimize the the uh, scale scope of the economic downturn and that was politically and economically uh, a major mistake on the obama administration um i was always much more pessimistic about where the economy was going and what i was talking about is not complicated economics uh, I just saw the magnitude of what was going on in housing. They were trying to pretend the housing problem was not significant. Uh, I thought the housing prices were going to go down. Uh, turned out I was right. They went down by more than 30%. Um, I thought consumption uh, was going to go down because the savings rate of zero was not sustainable. Uh, and, uh, again, it, it was right. Uh, I, I find it... Unbelievable that they misestimated as badly as they did, but that doesn't answer the question whether the stimulus worked. The fact that they uh, had not taken correct assessment of the economy doesn't mean that they weren't right about what we call the delta, what the extra effect of the government spending would be. Yeah, the the problem though is that it's always easy. You were right, let's say. there's always some people who are right ex ante. There's always many who are wrong who ex post can tell a story as to why they were right anyway. At, at, right? At the time, at the time, uh, Alan Blinder, who is as accomplished a Keynesian as, as academic Keynesian as there is, uh, did a, a calculation to claim that it was just about perfectly sized. Others said it was too small. Those that you and, and Paul Krugman, others said it was way too large. And the problem I have, and I'll raise this as more of a philosophical question uh, than than a particular question about the mess we're in. I don't see any really useful way to evaluate those those different claims. The CBO, which is not. Well, let, let me tell you. See, the framework that I had 
argued for at the time of the crisis recognize that there's going to be differences of opinion and uncertainty. I mean, obviously, I thought I was right, but I had to recognize that there were other people who had different models with different views. And I, you know, try as I could, I, I couldn't always persuade all of them. So what I said is the following. Let's have some programs which are automatic stabilizers. Uh, what do I mean by automatic stabilizers? Policies that would spend more money if the unemployment rate remained high, uh, like stronger unemployment benefits, um, but would diminish if the unemployment rate came down. Another example, I was very worried from the beginning about uh, the states and localities, because I've seen this before. Uh, state and localities have balanced budget frameworks, uh, especially with the property tax being so important at the state and local level. Property value is going down. I estimated by uh, a lot. Bob Schuller estimated by a lot. That meant that tax revenues were going to go down. That was going to mean uh, cutbacks in expenditure. That was going to mean weakening of the economy, unnecessary uh, layoffs of teachers, firemen, policemen. So I said, let's have a program that will fill in the gap uh, if tax revenues go down in the way that I anticipated. But if it didn't go down, we wouldn't have to fill it in because the economy was strong. We wouldn't have to fill it in. Uh, so that was a way that we could have squared the circle. We could have said, okay, if I'm right, we're going to have to spend a lot of money on these programs. If you're right, the economy is not weak, we won't spend the money. I'm ha- just as happy not spending the money if we don't need it. But unfortunately, the Obama administration and Congress would not adopt these automatic stabilizers. Well, they did a little bit. Uh, you know, a that, little bit, but not much. They extended. They've continued to extend unemployment insurance. Uh, when yeah, and they but, did, but they really only extended a, 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 for a limited duration of time. And now we're facing a problem that many people have run out of unemployment benefits. People have looked for a job and looked and looked and can't find one. Uh, and uh, uh, we didn't do anything about the stakes and localities. And the result of that is, of course, that public sector employees are now one million lower than they were in uh, 2007, uh, and these cutbacks are exacerbating the downturn. I'm not sure that when you think they're one million lower than 2007. Yeah, the, the, the combination of state, federal, and local are are uh, just the numbers I've seen are about one million lower, uh, three fourths of that at the state and local level. Yeah. Uh, there has been a small cutback from the peak. I don't think the peak was 07, though. I think the peak... Let me just it say. may have been 08, but from whatever it was, the peak, it's, it's a million down. Okay, well, we'll, we'll post... I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but, yeah. but it, it's significant. I'll post those. We'll, we'll put a link up to the data when we... Uh, I'll find a source, or you can send me a source. We'll, we'll, we'll check that. Sure. Um, but let me come back to this philosophical question. If you, you know, if you look at, at the CBO estimates of the effect of the stimulus, which are not, uh, actual estimates, but are rather just recalibrating the model for the actual amount that was spent, uh, their effect on employment is a six-fold range. That is, when they say, well, the third quarter of 2011, so many jobs were created. This is again, not an estimate based on the actual data, but rather a forecast, essentially a forecast using the amount of money that was spent. Uh, the range that they provide to show that they're scientific is uh, sixfold. That is the the high end estimate is six times the low end estimate. It's not very precise. 
And if you look at the survey of multipliers that Valerie Ramey and she was a guest on this program recently talking about, the range is enormous. Uh, and obviously that that's a result of the complexity of our economic system and the challenge of scientifically figuring out what the right specification is for estimating these. If you're a interventionist, you find a big multiplier. If you're a less a fair, less interventionist person, you find a small multiplier. Strangely enough, you confirm your. Can I, can I, yeah, the, the the problem is particularly difficult right now, and for the following reason, uh, we don't have deep downturns. Fortunately, very often. Correct. The last time we had a deep downturn, anything near this was the Great Depression, and the world has obviously changed a lot in 80 years. Many of the studies of multipliers, most of the studies of multipliers, are uh, focused on, in fact, I would say all the studies of multipliers are focused on situations where the unemployment rate is much lower. Many of the poorly done studies of multipliers include periods in which we have full employment i.e. No, uh, no significant unemployment. Uh, those are totally de- uh, deceptive in terms of an analyzing the multiplier because we know, you know, there's no disagreement among economists that if the economy is at full employment and you spend more uh, on government, something's going to give because you can't increase the size of the pie. You're not going to increase employment very significantly. Uh, and so you're just displacing government spends more uh, the Fed is going to raise interest rate, investment is going to go down, something else is going to have to give. And so in that kind of a world, uh, a zero multiplier or even a negative multiplier is possible because you're disturbing the equilibrium. So the fact that a lot of the time you, you have a zero multiplier says absolutely nothing about the current situation. And uh, what... Uh, a experience where we had three, four percent unemployment or five percent unemployment says about a situation where you've had prolonged uh, unemployment of over seven percent. Uh, again, is uh, uh, of some question. So that's, in my mind, the fundamental flaw in most of those econometric studies. Now, the difficulty is, what do we do? Yeah. Because we don't have the data. Yeah. And uh, that's where I keep coming back to, well, uh, we have to have flexibility. We have to use things like automatic stabilizers. We have to, uh, what we want, we need to do is so long as we can uh, uh, um, stimulate the economy in any way we can to get back to full employment, uh, we ought to be doing that because the price that we're going to pay is going to be very high. We're going to pay a price of our inequality. Uh, when you have this high unemployment, uh, wages get bid down, um, uh, social services get cut back, uh, investment in education get cut back is going on today. And so, uh, we are, we get more inequality and we are putting in jeopardy, uh, our economy today and our economy in the future. And it's especially hard on people with less education. Uh, you know, this is about a three, a threefold, much hard threefold, threefold difference in, in unemployment rate among people without, uh, without a high school diploma and those who have uh, college degrees. It's a brutal exactly. uh, situation. The question is, how do we make it better? And I think, um, just to sum up, you know, you're very critical of Milton Friedman in your book, um, and his philosophy. It's a philosophy I 
basically subscribe to, which is a philosophy of smaller government because I don't trust those uh, the, the feedback loops that regulators put in. You're more optimistic about that. I'm more optimistic about the ability of the private economy to create opportunity. I look at, as you mentioned earlier, I look at immigrants who come here. They seem to thrive. I think if you still – if you get a college degree and you study something serious and there's tremendous access to college now, that may not last because the loan problems – the loan programs may be uh, troubled. But I see a half full glass. You see half empty uh, to, to a large extent. Let's close. Why don't you talk about where why you're optimistic uh, and where you think – not where you'd like us to go, but where you think we're going that, that is encouraging. Say something cheerful. <laughs> Your book's very depressing. It's very it's yes. Well, it, 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 uh, things are depressing, and a lot of my my book is trying to prevent us from from things getting worse. Uh, that America, uh, I think, in some ways, has lost extreme. Uh, what you say is right. That we've had moments where we've uh, given opportunity. Uh, that people have made it to get ahead. That we are. We have great universities. Uh, w- we we have uh, great innovation, but the data are looking uh, more and more bleak. Uh, that uh, access to education, access to opportunity, is declining. Uh, the chance of somebody from the bottom making it to the middle, to the top, is lower than even in old ossified Europe. Uh, if we don't do something. Uh, we won't be able to compete in the global marketplace. Uh, so what I'm trying to argue is that we are paying a very high price. We, ha- we have a very high level of inequality, a higher level than most ma- Americans realize, a lower level of equality of opportunity, lower than most Americans realize. But that uh, we can't pull back. It's not that hard. Uh, and that's the mo- moment of optimism, uh, that I'd like to say. You know, in other moments, uh, where we face this level of inequality, we have pulled back from the brink. Uh, this is not the first time we face these unbridled levels of inequality. The Gilded Age, the Roaring Twenties, each of those instances we pulled back from the brink. We had the Progressive Era, we had the social legislation of the Thirties. And the, mo- the optimism is that if we can only grasp the uh, challenges that we're facing, understand the way things are going, uh, then realize that we can have a more equal society and a more dynamic economy, that the two can go together, uh, then, of course, we uh, will be laying the foundations for a future shared prosperity. Uh, and that's what I'd like to see, a shared prosperity where all parts of our country do well together. My guest today has been Joseph Stiglitz. Professor Stiglitz, thank you for being part of Econ Talk. Well, thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.